Chapter 24 Reginald had caused a great academic sensation at All Souls. His language skills were so extraordinary that arguing with him was almost impossible. His abilities were centered in two main areas. The first was scorn, and the second was agility. His scorn was a force of nature, something which had to be seen to be believed. Reginald was of the opinion that every moral stand was a mere posture, and he mocked earnest young men without mercy. He dismissed theoretical constructs as a waste of time, constantly insisting that focusing on practical matters was the only useful approach. He did not believe in bad men, but conceded that some people were in fact misguided about their own interests. He was a great fan of Gandhi. He was not optimistic about human nature, but was optimistic about the future. People were squalid, grasping, and only concerned with their own welfare, but that very selfishness was what would save mankind, he felt. Now that the bomber had brought warfare to the homes of the leaders, no one would dare start a war. He had no love of democracy, but respected its historical roots in England. It is our way, he would say with an ironic smile, and we are stuck with it. He liked Mussolini. There is a man who knows what he is about, but knew that fascism would never take root on British soil. Our local gin-sodden worthies, who can no more write books than they can fly, are, for some unfathomable reason, most attached to their freedom of expression. Reginald had a prodigious memory, in great contrast to Tom, who had great difficulty keeping all but the broadest abstractions in his mind, and was a past master of the oppositional quote. In debates, he would dig up some obscure reference by a great thinker, toss it at his opponents, and watch them writhing under the challenge of opposing genius. Of course, there was a faint pattern to the kind of knowledge which Reginald retained, but that did not become evident for some time. Certainty was quite hard to come by in the early thirties. The only way to approach it was to be dogmatic, and Reginald was far too vain for that. He disliked communism as messianistic German idealism, but conceded that it would probably never work because man was too selfish. The theory is very nice, but the problem is that mankind is not very nice, so it would never work. In this, he was in the same camp as the Vatican, which said that although communism would in fact be heaven on earth, it was impossible because the framers of communism forgot to take into account original sin, so that mankind, due to his innate sinfulness, could never achieve heaven on earth. So Reginald was not dogmatic. He made gentle fun of communism and gentle fun of democracy. You don't even have to be able to read to vote. And counseled by his very nature, the middle way of analysis, inaction, and, inevitably, compromise. Reginald was very certain of the rightness of his path, and since certainty was at a premium, he gained great respect. He was associated with practicality, with common sense, with the admirable British virtue of seeing both sides of an argument. He was seen as a little pedestrian, a little middle class, but that was not perceived as a bad thing. The 19th century was the age of adventurism, of upper-class empire-building, 
of all the errors of the perfumed warrior classes which culminated in the sobering slaughter of the trenches. And there would be no more of that. The world had grown too dangerous for saber-rattling. Braggadocio, posturing all the chest-thumping of old-world competition, all that was to be no more. The age of honor had passed. Now what was required was the age of compromise, the age of rationality, the age of common sense. Reginald was made the head of the student council and got almost perfect marks on his essays and performed admirably on his exams. His oral defense of his honest thesis was such a friendly chit-chat that he regretted not bringing some scones. Reginald was a thrilling, impressive, and dangerous student because he was a master of details. He knew every little fact, every little opinion, and scorned all attempts at theorization. He could, for instance, argue all of Luther's arguments about the corruption of the indulgences at the opening of the Reformation, and he actually knew all the 95 arguments that the venerable monk nailed to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, and then Reginald could turn around and argue the Vatican point of view with equal passion. Everyone is certain of their viewpoints, but that is impossible. Not everyone can be right. Thus, is it not most probable that they and we are all wrong? It was the and we that was the essence of Reginald's charm and danger. He scorned others, but he also scorned himself, and that put a velvet glove on his punch to the solar plexus of the ego. All certainty is illusion, he smiled, but then added winningly, even what I am saying. Reginald was that rarest of breeds, the smiling nihilist. All his preferences were based on mere momentum, we English have seen fit to develop and defend democracy, although it should be remembered that the Magna Carta gave rights only to the nobles, and so we should hang on to the institutions which the peculiarities of our soil and air gave life to. They cannot be transplanted, but they are ours, as our aunts and uncles are ours, out of habit, coincidence, and history. But we love them still. There was this great weariness in these formulations of Reginald's. Even his listeners, as they laughed in their relieved, uneasy way, could feel it. But this weariness was seen as world weariness, as the exhausted wisdom of a world traveller who has seen so much persecution, intolerance, and foolishness that he views all beliefs as extremism. Thus a man who has only seen cavalry thinks that banning horses will put an end to war. A great war raged across the campuses in the late 20s and early 30s, and it had to do with war and guilt. German historians, for obvious reasons, had gone to great lengths to persuade other scholars that Germany was not to blame for the Great War. This was called revisionism and was the revolting product of a rot that went far deeper. There was enormous mistrust between the generations. Everything which the older generation said to be true was automatically believed false. It was not a question of facts. They had little relevance. The great naval arms race between England and Germany before the war was clearly started and accelerated by Germany, but that did not matter. 
Within Germany, mounting civil unrest between the socialist deputies and the right-wing military leaders was a major factor in prompting Chancellor Bethmann Hollweg to issue his blank check to Austria to support her in any move she chose to take against Serbia. In the 19th century, Germany had developed a two-front war plan designed to allow her to survive war against France and Russia simultaneously. The evidence was clear. Opposition to the evidence was surreal. It got to arguments as ridiculous as saying that if only England had told Germany that Germany's actions would provoke war. The problem was not that there were disagreements within the fields of historical interpretation. The problem was that proof and records did not lead to truth. Truth was no longer something to be derived from what was. Quote, truth had arrived in the West once more for the first time since the religious wars of the 17th century. This truth was not empirical. It was ideological. It bowed to neither facts nor reason. This truth was ethereal, perfect, unconstrained by petty reality. It was immoral to even doubt it. Ideology had met faith, and their offspring was a thing most terrible to behold. Marxism and socialism were to blame. The great danger of the intellectual world, the belief that there is a secret motive which cannot be proven or even defined, took its terrible thorny toll on the tangled and violent student debates. Shouts of class enemy and tool of the bourgeoisie and Trotskyite or Lovestoneite rang through the air, and that was just among the communists. The communists called the socialists social fascists. When Roosevelt came to power in 1933, he was also a fascist. Trade unions were fascistic because they tried to wring concessions from the existing order rather than taking it apart, brick by brick. Parliament was fascistic beyond words. Every word it spoke dripped of smug, contemptuous, self-satisfied self-interest. Society was a sham. Everyone over 30 used every trick in the book to keep the young silent, productive, and in their place. If they counseled patients, it was so they could continue pillaging for just a few more weeks, months, or years. If they said that they were helpless to solve problems, it was because they profited from them. If they supported a student rebellion, it was because they wanted to co-opt it. If they put it down, it was because they had to smash what threatened them. This last part quickly became a point of pride for revolutionary movements. If the police did not crack their skulls, it was because they were not being revolutionary enough. The inevitable intractable class antagonism dictated by Marxist paranoia also dictated that the young wage war against the old. It is true that the young students of the early 1930s had, as Fitzgerald put it, grown up to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths in men shaken. They had been born in the shadow of war and knew little but wild instability, social upheaval, and the financial collapse of 1929. And by heavens, they were educated. It is an odd and unsupportable notion in society that education results in knowledge, tolerance, and understanding. This may be true when education is sober, reflective, and honest, but that has been true for only a tiny portion of human history. For the most part, Education inflames the resentments of youth, 
strips students of their capacity for empathy and kills all possibilities of peaceful negotiations. In the 1930s, society had a great problem with its young, especially its educated young. The greatest problem was that it had no place to put them. Throughout the West, up to a third of young men were unemployed, including those who had been to university. A popular song went, I sing in praise of college, of MAs and PhDs, but in pursuit of knowledge we are starving by degrees. Society had no place for its young, and so the basic intergenerational contract was rendered null and void. Obey, cried the previous generation, and all that we have shall be yours. But now they had nothing to give, no jobs, no security, no future. And the young went in search of answers. And the arms which opened for them were red to the marrow. But why? Why did the students of the 1930s turn to the socialists and communists? Why did they not become free market revisionists? The term radicalization does not help. When society goes seriously awry, it is natural for students in particular to act. But problems do not dictate the nature of solutions. The Americans did not like George III's excessive taxation, but they did not set up a dictatorship in response to it. The English did not solve the problem of Cromwell by setting up an absolute monarchy. The need to solve problems does not dictate the nature of those solutions. So why? Why did these students turn away from everything in the Western tradition and become slaves of Germanic and Slavic absolutism? It wasn't as if they had no examples of how to deal with social problems. They had the example of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. They had the separation of church and state. Why would they not think of the separation of state and economics, since the state management of the Western economies had proven so disastrous since the Great War? Their thoughts did not turn that way. It was inconceivable, and if it had been suggested, would have been sniggered away as about as relevant to politics as leeches are to medicine. Why? Why were German solutions so attractive? Ah, that is because of German philosophy, which had taken root about a hundred years before. Can't Hegel all the sniveling Germans who wailed from the mud that man was impotent, helpless, blind, and had to submit to the group to have any chance of virtue? All the sick ethics of the Christian Middle Ages returned to the sunnier west of reason and empiricism. Nothing new had occurred. All young people think they are being so radical when they are simply acting out slogans from three generations past. And why had German philosophy survived? How? had it crept back into the West. Ah, that is a sad, sad tale. In the 18th century, the height of the Age of Reason, religion was in mortal danger. Compared to science and reason, it was revealed as impotent, brutal, endlessly destructive. The Church had opposed every single advance in human thought from the new atomistic theories. Galileo was attacked more for this than his argument that the Earth moved, to chemistry, one of the seven devilish arts, to physics, banned by Pope Alexander III in 1163, to empirical experimentation, one of its first practitioners, Roger Bacon, was hounded for sorcery and imprisoned for 14 years, to medicine. The casualty list went on and on. Antonio de Dominis 
tried, tortured, and murdered for his investigations into the phenomena of light. Cornelius Agrippa, Wyer, Flay, Luz, Becker, and many others suffered confiscation of property, loss of position, and torture and death for their scientific research. Thus the creation of the Great Republic of America was explicitly non-religious. The framers of the Constitution were not Christians, but largely deists, who believed that God had, at most perhaps, wound up creation like a watch and intervened no more. The separation of church and state was no small humiliation for Christianity. Christians had proven themselves so virulent in their internecine wars that society simply could not survive where Christians disagreed. So the state was taken away from the church, like a hammer from a boy breaking windows. But it could hardly be expected that the church and all that it represented could be dismissed so easily. A certain group of incompetent mystics, incompetent in that the rigor of their thought could scarcely be compared with the matchless achievements of the Enlightenment, who had ruled mankind for thousands of years, had had all their power taken from them. Rational men of goodwill are not much given to driving the final nail into the coffin of a vanquished enemy. Out of misplaced sympathy they allowed God to live on, albeit in a distant, ghost-like form. They had neither the stomach nor the strength to go the final distance and reason God completely out of existence. So God retreated from the West and bided his time. Stung and rejected by a growing majority of mankind, his lack of existence outlined by the new lights of science and logic, God slunk back to Wittenberg and decided to make Germany his new home, his place of convalescence. Germany was a good place for God to hide and recoup. The light of science and reason did not shine over the mental skies of the Germanic peoples. They hated France and England and spat at the new ideas, defining themselves as proud medievalists, anti-rational mystics. After all, Luther was one of them, and Luther, good monk that he was, was no friend of reason. Whoever wishes to be Christian, let him pluck out the eyes of his reason. We must refrain from consulting reason. We must bid reason hold its peace. We must order it to be dead. We must gouge out its eyes and pluck its feathers. So mysticism, irrationalism, and superstition ruled the dark Teutonic forests where God made up his illusory lair and sent out his spies and agents to undermine his enemies. The simple fact, the fact that the West had never fully appreciated or realized, was that they could not have both science and religion. There is no synthesis between two and two make four and two and two make whatever the priest tells us. A good example is the conflict between atomic theory and the Catholic Church. Galileo was a great fan of Democritus, believing that matter was composed of tiny particles whose nature was not open to change. Ah, said the Church, but where does that leave transubstantiation? The wine and wafer are supposed to change into the blood and flesh of Christ, yet your theory says that this is impossible. To the rack with you, old man! These positions are without compromise. Faith and reason are enemies. There can be no detente. Science and religion cannot coexist without one of them superseding and eventually destroying the other. There is no middle ground. All right, but what about Marxism? Well, Marxism is a faith-based system of thought, and 
as such is philosophically indistinguishable from religion. Both Marxism and religion take their premises as absolutes, which require no proof or corroboration. Both view the world through the lens of their premises. Both promise some ill-defined paradise in the future if obedience is tendered in the here and now. Both posit that all failures in the world result from malevolent enemies, since communism is perfect, all crop failures, for instance, can only result from spies and insurgents. Since God is perfect, only Satan and evil men produce evil. Adherents to both systems are immune to rational argument. The only person who would argue against communism, for instance, is a class enemy, and therefore immoral, and therefore wrong. Only the devil would try to disprove God. Both systems are absolutely moral, and so are not open to experimentation. If a religious man is unhappy, it does not invalidate religion. If millions of peasants in a Marxist country starve to death after the collectivization of farming, that does not invalidate Marxism in any way. You want to make an omelette, you have to break a few eggs. The results of the system have no impact on the validity of the theory. The system is perfect. All imperfections are the fault of others. God was most cunning about this. God knew that he might have to wait for another few hundred years or more to mount his full return. Clearly religion had been exposed as violent, sectarian, repressive, and fundamentally unable to advance the human cause. Oops, said the Eternal One, let's skip in Germany and regroup. How to return? This was a great problem. But God, being infinitely intelligent, naturally came up with the answer before he had even asked the question. Since science is killing off faith, the solution is to keep faith alive in a scientific guise. This is why God is God. It was brilliant. The traditional Christian hatred of the rich was transformed into class warfare. The dominance of the collective over the individual, which was the essence of the church, was transformed into the absolute state. The church had always hated capitalism, which it virulently opposed throughout the Middle Ages by banning usury and absolute property rights. Now, under Marxism, capitalists became the great Satan. It was all too beautiful. Charity is the greatest virtue, said the church. The individual must give up everything for those less fortunate than himself, said Marx. God made his joke quite clear by making Marx adopt an Old Testament beard and nicely glowering eyes. Though this may seem oppressive, said the priest, you can only get to heaven through obedience. Give up all your rights, said Marx, and the state will wither away at some undefined point, and we shall all live in bliss. It is quite remarkable that the West did not hear God's infinite giggle, but this deception of genius passed by without attention. But that was because God was too cunning to just throw Marxism out there without preparing the way. Oh yes, the world had to be ripe. This is what God did to pave the way for socialism. First of all, reason had to be destroyed. Theologians truly understand this. They do not mess around. They have had to change a little since the Middle Ages when reason was considered an open enemy, which had to be continually stomped on. Since the Renaissance, science has proven too powerful and productive to be considered an absolute evil. However, reason could be delegated to a second-place position, which 
had its uses perhaps in the material realm, but it was not the absolute truth. But reason was really, really good at dealing with material reality. How could this be dealt with? Well, thought God, drifting through German oaks far from sunlight, we'll just have to do away with material reality. God did not mean doing away with reality per se. It probably crossed his mind, but that would be admitting defeat, like a losing football team calling in an airstrike. What he meant, in his infinitely subtle way, was that reality had to be destroyed as a criteria for truth. Reality gives rise to reason, because reality is consistent. Get rid of reality, you get rid of reason, except as a kind of happy coincidental trick for dealing with those deceptive atoms. But how to get rid of reality? Well, God knew he had to create doubt about man's capacity to perceive reality. Sure, let's have a go at the senses, of course. I made them, but still the devil seems to manage them. Ah, yeah, but that's not going to be good enough. I have to, ooh, this is a good one. Let's create a standard for perception which the senses cannot possibly achieve. Need a term which cannot be understood or explained. Ooh, things in themselves. Nice. It's good to be infinite. So God tickled the brain of Immanuel Kant, and he went about writing the Critique of Pure Reason, wherein the senses were damned for failing to comprehend things in themselves. This was because they could not see every atom of a rock, or the rock as God saw it. And so reason was undermined, limited, made the handmaiden of faith, and so faith regained its position at the pinnacle of human thought. How could the triumph of faith have been opposed? Well, there was no way for it to be opposed without going straight to Germany, finding God, and putting a stake through his heart. God would have to be completely rejected. If reality is real and perceivable, and reason is absolute, then God and many other things from ghosts to telepathy to the collective are revealed as nothing more than historical fantasies. But which warriors had the strength for that kind of final exorcism? The elimination of God is a light which remains too bright for the eyes of mankind, crusted as they are with the greed of the mystics. And so reason was toppled from the top of the tree, and that was all well and good, and God was much pleased. Yet there was so much more to do. It was all very well for God to strike out at his eternal foe, reason, but it was not enough that people thought that they didn't know rocks because they didn't know everything about a rock. It wasn't entirely activist, and God always liked to get involved. His hands tended to itch when they weren't getting dirty. So how could faith return to society? It could not come back as religion, not yet, and probably not for quite some time. This is where God truly confirmed his genius. I shall dress faith up as science, and then we shall march back to the world together. And so he turned his attention to one K. Marx. Once more the hand of God dipped into the clear waters of thought, muddying them, almost beyond repair. Marx 
put forward scientific socialism, which was the church in jackboots, well, more openly in jackboots, and all those who had been prepared by the murder of reason flocked to the banner of Prophet Marx and questioned him not at all. Now, religion was greatly feared as a social force. The wars of religion were still not so far away. Thus, God was prepared to even besmirch his own good name for a while so that he could return in time. And so he caused a great hatred to arise in Marx's breast, a hatred for the church. Now, it was true that no secular dictatorship can coexist with a strong church because the two forces would be forever vying for the throats of the helpless. Thus, thought God, if I want to keep faith alive as a social force, I shall have to do away with the church for a while. And such was the dedication of the good Lord that he even suffered his priests to be murdered by the thousands when the communists seized the throat of Russia in 1917. It is for the greater good, thought God, which is all for the good, since I am the greater good. Now, once reason had been killed, an active faith had returned to the world, the stage was set for the great bloody feasting of the twentieth century. Once nothing had to be proved any more, and since no social movement had to be judged by its consequences, then the gates were thrown wide open to the kinds of barbarians not seen in Europe since the fall of Rome. Fascists, Nazis, and communists arose and choked the old arteries of Europe, strangling freedom and all the liberating air of the nineteenth century, the century which had, for a hundred years, seen no war in Europe. God was no stranger to the sufferings of active faith and looked on in equanimity. He was finally free from his dark home in the German woods and could stalk the world, silent, invisible, but still there, and enjoy the fruits of his labors. Reason was silent. Individualism was dead. Capitalism was in full retreat. Democracy was shaky, trembling. In their place was all that God loved and needed to return openly in all his glory. Irrationalism, faith, the crushing of the individual under the boot of the tribe. Emotionalism, he heard over and over the most beautiful words his ear was capable of absorbing. I believe it because I feel it. He felt his strength grow. Proof is dead. Long live God. Chapter 25 Reginald was a vain man, that much was clear, but he had some basis for his vanity. It can take a young man with abilities a long time to turn the manure of vanity into the rose of pride, but there are worse first steps. Reginald finished his master's degree in economics with a minor in history in 1932. He did very well, and there was great clamoring for him to continue on to a PhD, but his higher calling came calling, so to speak, and he could not resist it. Reginald had always recalled his father's advice, marry well. And it was a strange but true reality of upper-class marriages, especially aristocratic ones, that a certain Reversal had come into unions ever since the Great War. The Great War had been the end of the patriarchy, and in more than the physical sense. 
In England, men had gathered great wealth to their bosoms before gathering shrapnel to their chests in France. This wealth had flowed to the women who found themselves in possession of money, land, and very soon political power for the first time in the history, not only of England, but of the world itself. Not only did no one believe the edicts of men anymore, but there were very few men left to speak them anyway. As a new class, women arose and could not be resisted. Among the titled classes, the concentration of wealth was truly something to behold. As a warrior class, the aristocrats were used to leading the charges and so were the first to be fed to the machine guns. So their wives and daughters now had money and became great objects of desire to those with a higher purpose. Wendy had more than wealth. She had a smattering of education, just enough to appear knowledgeable at parties. She could play music, of course, but rarely did, because she felt that it made her look like some ornamental thing from a Jane Austen novel. She read quite extensively, but randomly. She loved closing her eyes and pulling books from her father's library, and then reading through them no matter what, even if they were works of etymology or primers on French verbs. She was very tall, willow-like. Women did not like standing next to her because her waist was their rib cages. She had long, supple hair, which could look as good lashed back on her head as she rode, or spread over a pillow. Wendy was also one of a small group of women whose appearance left no doubt that they came from an illustrious aged bloodline. Blood in England was like a kind of blue wine. Connoisseurs preferred it old. She had high cheekbones, dark, perfect eyes, a surprisingly sensual mouth, a strong but not manly chin, and a high forehead. Wendy also had a rare vivacity, as well as a staggering ability to attract men. She was all that was bright and fleeting in feminine youth. As a teenager, she was a constant flitting prize for the young officers stationed near her house. In the 1920s, they vied for her hand at dances and arranged for their brass bands to pass by her house when she was breakfasting. Once, tragically, a young flyer had crashed and died after attempting to do a victory roll over her house, which sobered her for days. Wendy enjoyed all this attention. She had a manic intensity and physical fearlessness which worried her parents, since they associated it with lesbianism. However, although Wendy could not be said to actually like boys, they clustered around her so tightly that she could scarcely tell them apart, all those yearning, lusty eyes, she was not attracted to women. Her beauty was a kind of blinding light. Her looks, which sadly were destined to die with her youth, since photographs were never able to catch her at the right angle, were almost supernaturally invasive. Wendy irradiated men. They were like brave sandcastles to her pounding surf. Certain women's faces are so constructed that they dissolve the personalities of those they gaze on. Well, gaze was scarcely the right word, because Wendy never seemed to gaze. Her eyes challenged or scalded or mocked or flittered to and fro. They never seemed to rest in their sockets. Her hair was literally honey-colored 
either hard or soft honey, depending on the weather. Such was her fortune. She had an admirable figure. Her arms were a trifle muscular, but her legs were long and her waist narrow. She bought a diary to record her thoughts, but it turned, within the span of two weeks, into a record of what she ate, who came to call, and the thickness in inches of her thighs. It was not that she did not have any thoughts or was unintelligent, but there was a kind of mania within her which seemed to call all the greedy souls in the world towards her, and she was so consumed with managing the cult of Wendy that she scarcely had time to notice and explore her own existence. She was the secular champion of a large group of wild girls. Wendy, like Reginald and most of their friends, had grown up in silent, fearful houses, long on handkerchiefs and short on fathers. All the natural vivacity of early childhood had been buried under an impending rain of expected coffins. And and there was a sense in the twenties that mankind had been given a singular reprieve from all rules. Youth was to triumph youth and inconsequentiality, and intense, casual sensation. Giddy laughter, wild driving, dawn dancing, long pointless stories, sudden giggling wrestling. Young women loved to dress up as ladies and act like men. They sat on the hoods of cars and kicked up through their wide dresses. And also there was all the sad absolutisms which come from a youth culture, the disdain of wisdom, the love of the moment, a contempt for planning, and scorn at the deferment of pleasure. The tribe of youth had great physical vanity, which was utterly at odds with their studied dissolution. It was not enough to be rakish and modern. One had to look rakish and modern. The great Gatsby was a great hit. Everyone wanted to be Gatsby because he was beautiful and rich and threw great parties. A criminal? Surely that didn't matter. Not so much. Not any more. Not after and of his thwarted loves and fumbling failures of intimacy, well, it was sort of cool to be hopeless at relationships. It meant that you were full of energy, and that you could forever milk the elusive giddiness of being pursued. These youths had great hopes which they knew nothing about. They hoped that they would never have to grow up. They hoped that being wanted was the same as being worthwhile. They hoped that having wealth was the same as having value. They were brutal with each other. They clawed at tenderness with casual flings. They were utterly dependent on naive, trusting newcomers. There was a hard core of permanent wastrels and an ever-oscillating orbit of comers and goers. They had wild fun. They skidded off roads and tore their clothing and laughed at car crashes all the more so if it belonged to one of the newcomers. They promised to pay for things, but never did. And what was so attractive about them? What drew the naive to them to drown among their shallow pools? It was impossible to see once one scratched the surface. What looked like fun at night looked pale and scabby in the chill light of dawn. It was like the liquor, sweet going down, acrid, coming up. The wit and wildness of midnight was replaced by the tired sniping of 7 a.m. 
This jaunty crew swelled past the bursting point, fed by the wild desires of other people to claw their way into the inner circle of emptiness. They were a test, a test of darkness, and their cynicism was not helped, or rather was helped, by the number of dupes and rubes who were drawn into their fiery, demonic, and unsustainable world. They were pretty, vivacious people, who milked their looks and vivacity with a lifestyle which was certain to make them ugly and exhausted in time. They were like a man who becomes poor by living rich, or a farmer who eats his cattle and then is enraged because he has no milk. They believed, deep down, that youth was a moment which lasted forever. But youth is not a moment, and it does not last forever. And here is what it meant and why it was horrible. They called themselves the last generation, which was about the most narcissistic joke in history. They had been handed their sufferings, of course, and this was sad. The pre-war world was no more. Something had gone wrong. But, but they did not stop to sit and talk and write and think about what had gone wrong. And they had not themselves suffered at all, not directly. It was not they who had given up their blood to save the world from the Germans. The lost generation drank and sniped and pitied themselves. They felt no gratitude or relief at the simple fact that it was far, far better to be part of the lost generation than to have been a part of the slaughtered generation. No, of course not. That would have meant that they would have had to do something to make the world a better place, rather than just squander their senses and their sense in a silly orgy of blind cacophony. But it is ever the lot for pretty people to pity themselves and lash out at others. When Wendy met her future husband, she was spiraling fast. Wendy had lost her virginity at the age of 14 and had dated a lot of boys since then. Like any addict, she went through random phases of chastity, but then would slowly slide back down the greasy ladder of bit by bit, from kissing with tongue to letting her breasts be touched, to touching his penis through the trousers, then fingers to flesh, and so on this ladder is widely known, until full intercourse occurred, often in some uncomfortable place. It could never be a comfortable place, because that would require planning, a conscious decision ever the bane of the addict. But what was Wendy addicted to? It was not so much sex, which was just okay. No, what Wendy enjoyed was the desire of the boy. It structured entire evenings for weeks at a time. She could feel it from the moment of approach. She could read his thoughts the whole time. Am I getting closer? What do I have to say or do or even think for the more sensitive boys to get in? There was an odd paradox in Wendy, something which would have stunned her if she had been fully aware of it. She was, literally, there for the taking. Any man who cornered her honestly could have her. She was beautiful, exotic, sexy, and vivacious, and available for the asking. Well, not quite asking... She wanted to slap the odd, sensitive boy who seemed to think that she was some kind of exotic goddess who could barely be breathed on, let alone touched. 
If a boy was insistent and a little cruel, then she would always open, slow and curled, like the claw of a dead bird. This would have stunned the stunted phalanxes of boys who worshipped her from afar. These boys were so intimidated by her beauty and dangerous presence that they were often in danger of fainting when addressing her. She was able to blow them away like a fly from her arm with a sigh and a bored distant gaze. She always misheard them, enjoying their discomfiture. What? Pardon? Sorry? So much fun. Or she would drop a sexual word into a sentence and watch them squirm in confused, indecisive excitement. You can't be serious. This word, although fine to inflict on stammering, red-faced admirers, was not allowed among her girlfriends. If absolutely required, it was referred to as the see-you-next-Tuesday word. But it was another kind of boy who always got inside her. Inside her body, of course. If a woman's soul has an inside, it requires more than insistence to get into. It was most ironic, and Wendy would have laughed had she noticed it before driving and crying. Most of the boys are so obsessed with picking my locks that they never try just yanking the lid open. For that was how it occurred. A boy who did not respect her. Well, they had started out as boys, but were now graduating to men. They had grown from seed to seedy. A boy who did not seem to care or notice that she was bright, vivacious, verbal, and playful. Why, then he found almost immediately that she had no other defenses and could be undone with a sexy sneer. And sneer, they did. When she first met her future husband, Wendy was going through one of her abstinence phases. The past year had started off badly. She had been abroad in Spain and had fallen hard for a swarthy sequence of Spaniards. Within a week of entering the country, Wendy found their combination of deference and rules-based conquest almost irresistible. They were very respectful, they opened doors and folded their hands while she talked, and bristled when other men looked at her, and then, at the end of the evening, they felt it their absolute right to have her. I have been deferential all evening, and now it is your turn. This combination of princess and whore shot black lightning through her whole being. It was unbearably exciting waiting for the moment when Prince Charming was replaced by Olaf the Spanish Viking. It was indescribably sexy. It always reminded her of one of her first boyfriends who had been manic and funny and would make jokes while she pleasured him. She always loved that little tense fulcrum when he stopped joking and began sliding inexorably towards orgasm. She loved her power to stop his laughter, the power to change his mind, his whole being. In Spain, the masculine combination of charm and invasion almost proved Wendy's undoing. For some reason, but probably because of their deference in public and dominance in private, she did not imagine that these Spanish men were capable of gossip. They were, of course. A broken English flower had washed up on their fortunate shore, and they were not about to leave their luck unspoken. It took Wendy a moment to realize that she was descending. The first fall is always so soft and unassuming. But it soon became clear that the deference of her dates was diminishing, but that their aggression 
at the end of the evening was not. Finally, she had a terrible hour of near wrestling in a car with a slightly overweight man of over forty. As soon as the combat began, she realized that she was in a terrible bind. To reject a man when he already knows that you're loose is a terrible insult, which is why so many loose women come to bad ends. All too often they decide to mend their ways in situations designed to deeply incense immature men. Wendy had to fend off his advances. For some reason the insistence of a Spanish man was no longer sexy, but made her feel like vomiting. There is my pussy and his cock, but we are not involved, not the rest of us, not at all. And then she began to feel a great rage within her, a coiled snake of past violations, and without warning drove the heel of her hand into his nose, which broke far more easily than she would have imagined. The man howled and raised his hand to strike her back, but she was scrambling back over the passenger seat, clawing to open the door. God damn these clothes! Which wolf designed these heels for us sheep? And then something terrible had happened. It was worse than anything she could have imagined. The man began to laugh. Or oh, Wendy could have taken anything else, even... even but the sight of the man laughing, his dank skin, cupped hand, and escaping, spraying blood. It was an image of the most intense madness, and it haunted her. This is a man who was about to get inside me. There are many kinds of pregnancies, she realized. She always made a man wear a French letter, but a man can plant a seed of madness. I would have had a giggling, mad child with a broken nose growing within me, she thought later, walking home. The man had let her get out of his car, then driven away, slowly, carefully rolling down his window, as he turned the car, making her realize that he had to let go of his nose and was only doing it so she could hear his gruesome laughter, which was his greatest weapon. Wendy had been left by a river a few miles from town. She had not noticed the route. She had been teasing him about his mangy mustache, she recalled, calling him a twelve-year-old little Hitler, and enjoying his discontent, his desire to silence me, warring with his desire to have me. What is it about me that gets so giddy when I provoke others into impossible situations? The time when I told the theology student that I was an atheist while he was undressing? Or the time I told the Jewish boy that I thought the National Socialists had some good ideas? How I love that moment when the hypocrisy surfaces. I am a most unholy angler. A word so close to angel, but in me, so far. Lying in her dank, slowly fanned hotel room that night, Wendy had a long and, for her, fairly frank look at her own life. Something odd had happened. More than the near attack, but less than that awful laughter. In the past, near escapes had always increased her sense of bravado. The gods protect drunks and little children. And the story the next day was always enhanced by whatever narrow escape had almost cut her off from the future. The universe is my friend and I cannot be killed. But there was something inescapable about a broken nose. Would the universe have been my friend if I had not hit him? 
I think not. I think not. It is hard to escape the brute fact of violence. And the first outbreak of violence is so often the last chance of escape. Because if I accept that, thought Wendy, then what is left for me to reject? But to reject, to reject her life as it was, as it was going to be, for its path was becoming quite clear, required that she accept her future. To give up something now, I have to believe that there is more to come. But what was she giving up? There was no easy answer to that, and Wendy rolled over in her hot sheets. I would love a drink right about now, and if it were last night or any night since I was fourteen, I would just leap up and go in search of one, and then tell the story the next day. Sure, it was three a.m., but a girl gets thirsty. No, that had to be restrained, at least for a time. When she had stumbled in, her feet swollen and bruised by the straps of her shoes, she had gone to wash her face and noticed a fine spray of blood on her white blouse. White! She had thought derisively, her emotions going into a grim spiral. She stared at herself in the mirror, the cracked mirror spotted on the edges, and had a random mad desire to pound her face into the glass, to disfigure herself beyond recognition, beyond recovery, beyond, beyond men, she thought, and a certain series of faces were recalled to her, like an orchid recalling the thunder of a stampede, and she flinched visibly. Who has not gone through me? Who has not grunted and splashed sweat and semen and liquor on me? The feeling was sudden. Wendy vomited into the sink. When she was done, she pressed her forehead into the glass, looking down. These are the entrails of bad men and a bad slut, which I have removed and will leave alone to rot in Spanish plumbing. Turning the tap on, she watched the little colored bits and stringy mucus flow down the rusty sink. But the water is also diseased, so it will do no good. Leaning back, she put her hand on her scant cleavage, feeling the bone beneath, and her heart, which could not stop its wild beating, as if it hoped to shake itself loose and roll away. Escape! From what? From the men? No! From you! What do the men see and want so much that they will risk all, she wondered. Marriage, career, jail. What do they want to possess? I thought it was me all these years, but no. But no, it is not me, because the man in the car had me before he tried to take me, and then he left me. A beautiful woman is a tricky, trapped, and mirrored castle. Everyone wants, but not for her. Everyone wants a trophy, not a treasure. Men are cannibals. They consume her flesh in the hopes of gaining her soul. But the consumption is soulless. She is trapped, prejudged, as are all who sport visible afflictions. 
And all this happened to me when I was the most young, the least able to survive such predations. Wendy was, at this moment, twenty-four and three-quarter years old. And if I do not stop it while I am still pretty, it will never stop. I will become an it. An impulse shivered through her forearms to grapple her breasts from her very body. Taking a deep breath, Wendy took a step back from the mirror. Undressing quickly, she climbed into bed, a deep and sickly shiver rolling through her. Being unused to inner revolts, she thought that she had eaten something disagreeable. And it may have been so, but there is truth in fever as well. The faces of past lovers flowed over her like rotting lily pads over, over. She felt like Ophelia lost to the under-trickling of a slow, deadly stream. Where are they all now? She wondered, afraid to turn over for fear of being ill again. Poised on their haunches over some sweet young thing, they fish with dynamite. But the nausea did not go away whether she fantasized about killing them or scorning them from the unassailable vantage point of some unfathomable wealth or prestige or returning to their spider embraces. Because, because you were not a victim. That thought made her less nauseous but more terrified. A kind of evil had taken nest in her, an evil which caused great pain in its host and in others, but which blamed only others. Other boys' faces passed her by in a flowing mass, and she saw tender, young, hopeful boys reaching for her hesitantly, and she recalled putting on her acerbic, bitchy, demanding and sexy mask, daring them to come closer within reach to be brought down. I hurt them. But really, Wendy threw her covers aside. She stared up at the turning ceiling fan exhaling on her like a slow, slow waterfall of dank air. It needed speeding up, but she had tried that with the fan at the last hotel, and it had stopped completely, so she just lay there. She snorted aloud. It was too ridiculous. The shy boys were just slower predators. They would possess me with endless deference and jumping up whenever I shifted or squeaked, running around me in hypnotic blur until I pinned them to the wall, substituting plaster for spine. They did not want to get to know me any more than those who narrowed their eyes at me and gripped my arm too hard when we crossed the street. But why? She wondered. Suddenly, why did I never taste the more subtle fruit? Why did I spurn the shy boys? Wendy frowned, trying to remember if any of them had ever attracted her. She smiled, humorlessly, in the dark. Well, really, how could they? How rakish would it seem to be dashing young me with such sops hanging from my arm like puppies from a rising stick? Ah, she thought. Then it was also my vanity. I wanted to show off as well. I wanted to be thought of as a wild, snorting, lovely horse running with my own kind, not ridden by pale boys sliding to one side or another. I was to be a force of nature. 
All right, so there was a price. But those sniveling boys were just too much. One of them in upper school had left little poems and love songs on her tray in the dining hall. They always enraged her. Sometimes she would force herself to read them and feel a freezing contempt icing her innards. What does he have to offer me except little rhymes and rank fantasies about my worth? To be so loved when so unknown, how could that have produced anything except rage? But I never stopped dressing up. I wanted the shy boys to cast themselves at me. I offered my crinoline as a parachute and then kicked them out of the plane empty-handed. Wendy frowned. This was getting her nowhere. Bastard or sap, good choices. No, it had to be more than that. Where are the nice, strong, decent men? The men who open doors and smile at your habits and kiss you firmly but gently? She tried to remember. You know, they don't seem to be around, not at all. And those, those I remember turned out to be not so nice after all. Does that mean that my beauty is a corrupting force? Am I like a permit to a bureaucrat, just a shiny chisel to widen and dissolve the decency of others? They went to war over Helen. Does that myth endure because beauty sets brother against brother? Because no one comes out of this pearly pit alive? There had to have been some nice young men. Not lower class, of course. That's just the decency of deference. But nice young men. Where were they? Wherever they were, they weren't attracted to me. Now that thought made Wendy very sad. She had an image of herself as a wailing child, abandoned on the steps of the boarding school by her mother, who had made a mistake and had to catch a train. Those boys weren't attracted to me. Why? Well, her beauty couldn't be responsible for it all. Beauty didn't count for everything. So perhaps they were not just threatened by my beauty, but did not think that I was a very nice person, that I was vain and perhaps a little cruel, that, that I used my beauty to attract men and so just wasn't very appealing to decent men. That that I would not be very pleasant to grow old with. The last thought brought a tear to her eye. She touched it in wonder. I would not be very pleasant to grow old with, and I would be a bad mother, a bad wife. I would be demanding and never satisfied and shrieky and feel that I was wasting my youth on petty domesticity. I would overdress my children and demand that they answer me in unison and cut their food with impatience and always imagine that some dashing set was having great fun in some wonderful nightclub which I could just step into. No, I am not going to be that woman, not that way, not in the way which spreads my hips and bakes my pies and widens my arms or oh, heart. It was like a sentence of death thrown down by some white-suited Spanish judge fluttering down into her dark, hot hotel room, where the bed creaked and the rattan was half-broken and the taps leaked and the mirror 
had spots. "'But I hate all that stuff anyway,' she thought angrily, wiping a tear away. "'What am I going to be, homemaker of the year? "'And children? Do I want stretch marks? "'It's like leaving the Mona Lisa out in the rain. "'No, I will age, but I will age like a raisin. "'I will become compressed and spidery "'and have tiny wrinkles which cannot deepen "'because I have no subcutaneous fat left.' I will be emaciated and lever myself like a pair of walking scissors along the beach. I can be lovely for maybe another fifteen years, maybe twenty, if I'm lucky, forty-five. So I live until seventy. I have twenty-five years of fun, thirty-five of decline. Because it won't all end, not all at once, my standards will just lower. I mean, it's like a sunset. Sure, there's a time when the sun definitely winks over the horizon, but before that it just gets darker bit by bit. No kids, but that's a lot of fun. And, and there's also the final prize. The rich man who doesn't want children, who's not too attractive but is content to sleep around overseas, who gives me a long financial leash. No, she didn't like that thought, too pet-like. A lot of money, and just wants me to hear about his troubles and maybe rub his feet once in a great while, and we will have cynical asides about each other as lovers, and make love very rarely, but when one of us falls sick, the other will rush to their side, and we will realize that we did love each other more than we really had a right to. This was about as close to tenderness as her imagination could roam without great ruin. He will hold me as I die, or cancel his flings if I break a leg. There was something dry and movie-like about this fantasy. He was always in a tuxedo. She always swept from the room, perfectly groomed. They were never naked. They never flossed. She thought of this fantasy man in a tuxedo at the dentist and almost laughed. Hard to be our bane with your teeth coming out. And they would sit in their declining years. He always switched to a navy blue sailing suit at this point. And they would not speak much, sipping Turkish coffee in a bright sunny cafe where the young people would point them out and whisper of their history. Would it be worth it? wondered Wendy. Something deep pulled her in this direction towards this kind of marriage, defined more by grim loyalty than tender love. Because there would be no children, I get to keep my figure, my breasts, my skin, and twenty years of my life. But could there be a decent man who does not want to have children? Or I could pretend that I was infertile, reverse my menstrual period, refraining from sex when I was actually ovulating. No. He would notice the blood, of course. Perhaps that is why the blood is there. But really, why do we rush to reproduce? Are we such habitual livestock or so vain that we cannot imagine leaving the world without our little replicas? I mean, there is the life of the mind a little, or the life of sensation, conversation, and travel. It's not all about squatting and groaning and squirting. Wendy shuddered. Blah, birth and children are just so... I mean, I love my looks. I would feel robbed. How could I love such little thieves? And if I am not going to have children, why not enjoy the equipment a little? So I'm not going to be an artist. I can't play around with the paint. Ah, uh, but that 
little trial balloon fluttered and fell quite quickly. The problem was that Wendy did not really enjoy sex, so the role of pleasure-loving dabbler in the fleshy arts did not hang naturally on her. She had little flickers of urgency, but it was not a connecting experience, not something which left her satisfied. Her satisfaction seemed to rise and fall with the man's desire. She was satisfied when he wanted her, and dissatisfied after he had his orgasm. Her sexuality was the exact opposite of her lover's. So, if sex is not the big draw, then then what? What would keep her from settling down into the plump little outfit of compliant wifey? Oh, God, how I hate it! thought Wendy savagely. She got up, knowing that this was going to be a night of lying down and getting up. She went out onto the little balcony, looking out at the night. An electric light leaned out of a window, illuminating a black cat sitting on a patch of gravelly grass, licking its paws. If I had not gotten up tonight, I would have slept right through that black cat. I would never have known that it existed, and yet... What is the point of me knowing that it exists? These are thoughts common to all who look upon a sleeping town, thoughts quite different from those of the daytime. Who else is awake? Who is fighting, making love? Under which roofs are crimes being committed, even as I gaze over them? Rape. Murder. No, not murder, thought Wendy. This town is too small for nightly deaths the molestation of a child, the self-mutilation of an addict, the stealing away of a burglar, who might well come back for breakfast and tut and sigh in sympathy with his victims. Nights were charged for Wendy. She gained in energy as the sun went down like some oppositional plant, but tonight was worse than usual. Why do I not want to be a wife? she thought. There are ten thousand placid wives in this town. They wash clothes by hand and cross themselves and fear blackbirds and screw with earthly squatting passion. But that is not for me. The ancient English-Mediterranean dichotomy arose in her mind. One is either a body without a mind or a mind without a body. I would not be like... English wives either, she thought, all catty and spidery and restrained and shedding friendships with tight sighs and warding off their men with resigned, toothy restraint. And motherhood. Wendy shuddered, another chill swept through her body. She felt as if the earth was flying away from under her, as if she had become the only fixed thing in the universe, and that the world fled from her in its endless orbit. And the sun's orbit, she thought, and the galaxy's orbit. Stand still, my daughter, and the world flies away. But my looks are designed to seduce, designed to bring me much seed. I am a rank pollen, the red bulge of a bird's throat, and I want none of it. None! Her hands were gripping the cold stone of the balcony wall. Wendy loosened them, brushing the granite grit from her palms and taking a deep breath. If I were a man, I would go and walk and walk until I collapsed. Then I would get up and drink until I collapsed again. Then I would get up and go in search of war. 
terror was in her soul. As nonchalant as I am, I still broke a man's nose tonight. I called him a little Hitler and made him bleed. These facts cannot be denied. So, her options. Get married, become a trouser-wearing suffragette, kiss ladies with penciled mustaches and rail against the indifference of men, go into business. Oh, yes, I could see myself rising at dawn to go and scribble on carbons all day. I offer myself as a typist. Qualifications, very long nails and a very short attention span. The air began to brighten vaguely with a forgotten smudge of light in the east over the town. Wendy leaned against the parapet, feeling the rocky grit pressing against her hips, craning her head. The horizon returns. Or just to continue? That thought had appeal, to be sexy but celibate. The thought had richness, but it fell apart almost instantly. Wendy knew deep in her watery bones that one cannot be celibate and decadent at the same time. Which values are the most pleasurable to destroy? Celibacy and sobriety. There is little else. Nihilism needs the senses to destroy sensation. I cannot offer myself to the gods of random pleasures without letting their priests have at me. But could she drink and keep her vagina to herself? But then why drink with men? Drink is the oil of their slithering, lock-picking fingers. Everything is smooth, baby. Why resist? Those greasy fucks. Wendy whispered, her voice hoarse. The goddamn dishonesty. In my world, everyone lies. You are precious. Nothing matters. Fuck me. I never say goodbye. Our paths will surely cross. Everything comes and goes. Don't be so uptight. Relax. Give in. Give in. Give in. Not to me, but to the devil we all serve. Somebody, tell me the truth, she said to the night. The empty town. The sky without stars. Finally, the sun came up. Wendy had brought out a rusted metal chair and sat on it, still in her nightgown, her elbows on the parapet, her hands cupping her cheeks. As she watched, feeling all the inner grime of a morning without sleep, of a daybreak without change, a young man in navy shorts came out from the back of her hotel. Although the street was deserted, he stretched in a self-conscious manner which evoked a thrill of pleasure and recognition in Wendy. After a few minutes, he jumped up and down a few times, then ran up the street. He had the stiff, high-kneed gait of a runner who cared about time and distance. His hair was dirty brown. He was English, like her, when he saw that in a moment. His hair could only look good after at least a month of sun. He was well tanned. He possessed a lot of will. He was intelligent. Everything was clear to her after only a few seconds of watching him run. He needs approval, but he will never get it. He would be pleased to know that I am watching. He likes passing fat Spaniards lolling in their undershirts. He likes to think of them gazing in dumb envy at his trim British imperial form. This is how the empire was won, he thinks, although I do not think he likes the empire. 
Wendy frowned. The young man turned a corner and ran up a street, away from her, up a slight hill. The crunchy slap of his feet, his tight pumping arms. This was a new kind of man to her. A decent man? She wondered. Well, no, not quite, but a man who wants to settle down. A man with propriety, a man who would never keep her waiting, a man who would take pleasure in defending her, a man with will, potential, and a defined future. In that, he was a new kind of man. He could no more be dissolute than give birth. She smiled and waited for almost an hour until he came running back. As he turned the corner at the bottom of the hill, he could not help but see her. A recognition passed between them, and she felt very naked, very vulnerable, very excited. He ran into the hotel. She turned from the balcony, showered as best she could, scrubbed her face, changed into something conservative, and went downstairs. Wendy sat in the little restaurant. It was a low-ceilinged room with too many tables. Some form of state subsidy seemed to be in place because there were three waiters for eleven tables, and the service was terrible. The waiters stood by the kitchen, bantering, gossiping, joking. They laughed in racking cackles, which sounded almost like sobs. Their uniforms were unpressed. They drank a lot of water. There did not seem to be any management. They looked quite different. One was overweight, one short, one tall. But Wendy suddenly realized that they were brothers possibly the sons of an owner who had died at least six months before and had left the hotel in the hands of his children who did not care for it. That would explain why the hotel had deteriorated so much. The last time Wendy was here, 18 months before, the place had sparkled with homespun charm. That was a phrase from the advertisement, homespun charm, which Wendy detested. What did it mean? She had arrived just over two weeks before and found that the hotel had fallen from grace. Whatever homespun charm meant, it had vanished. The woman Wendy was travelling with had gone on a week's hiking tour, but Wendy had stayed behind, feeling great lassitude. Why not change hotels, at least? Her friend had said, but Wendy didn't want to. Allegiance to memory, perhaps? It was once a very nice place. Finally, the fat waiter came and stood over her, eclipsing a bright window. Something for madam? He asked, his eyes twinkling from the fading light of some ribald joke. "'Coffee and bread,' she said, squinting at him. "'English marmalade?' "'Yes.' Wendy had to consciously block the please. Why be polite to the incompetent? The fat man brought her food and coffee, and she ate, quickly hungry, all of a sudden. After finishing her bread and marmalade, she looked up at exactly the moment that the young runner came in. His eyes were fixed on her as if he had seen her location through the walls before entering the restaurant. He nodded, and she nodded back, her heart pounding. I cannot move. The man went over to the back of the little room, and Wendy's heart sank. He talked with the trio of waiters. She could tell that he spoke Spanish and approved. Did he gesture at my table? She wondered. Yes. He came over and bowed slightly. "'Good morning,' he said in English. Wendy smiled. 
her heart full of some strange, sticky substance. Happiness? Good morning. Would you mind if I joined you for breakfast? I'm terribly worried that I'm losing the ability to speak English. Wendy paused, then nodded. By all means. He sat down, brushing his hair back from his forehead. She noticed that he was still perspiring a little from his run, and was pleased. It means that he came down before fully cooling off to increase the odds that I would still be here. My name is Reginald Spencer, he said, leaning forward to shake her hand. Wendy Mullenix, she said. The waiter brought Reginald coffee and bread. Gracias. He took a sip. French. Norman? 1066. She said, we came over with William the Conqueror. And what are you doing in Spain? Travelling. Alone? I have a friend. But she has gone hiking for a few days. How delightful to see the play of fear in his eyes in the moment between me having a friend and that friend being a she. And you? Reginald took a tiny bite of bread and chewed for a moment. Wendy thought that his bite was so small and his chewing so rapid that the bread would more dissolve than be swallowed. I'm joining the Foreign Office in the autumn, he said, so I thought I'd spend the summer going through Europe to get a look at the goods, so to speak. It was going to be a coach holiday, or I thought I might hire a car, but it turns out to have been a running holiday. Have been? Are you almost finished, then? Well, I was hoping to get to Germany and the Eastern European countries, but it's mid-August, and so far I've managed to run through France and a bit of Spain. So, tell me about a running holiday. He smiled. It's smashing. You travel by day and cramp by night. I've always wanted to see the nightlife, but I can't walk very well after getting to a new place. Wendy noticed that his smile was a little strained. Something was askew in his personality. She began to relax and smiled back. So you run all day and then fall into bed at night. Well, as a taxpayer, I confess to being most relieved. And why is that? Well, if this is your idea of a holiday, I believe that you will work very hard in the foreign office and I shall get my money's worth. Yes, I imagine that I will. This is going to be a very important decade. There was a pause for a moment. Reginald took a sip of his coffee. So tell me about yourself, he said. A spasm passed across Wendy's face. Oh, God, I believe I have lost the capacity to lie. I am a very sad girl she said, almost afraid to breathe. Reginald's eyes widened, then seemed to sharpen. He put his cup down carefully. Wendy watched him dizzily. A kind of panic seemed to be radiating from his skin. I'm sorry, she murmured. That sounds entirely more lonely than it is, than I am. Well, he said, leaning forward, perhaps not entirely. Wendy held his gaze and felt a certain aspect of her personality crumble and give way. Beyond this wall of tension was a great, poised, waiting space. So, tell me about you, she said softly. I am, he stopped, then laughed. I, I am intrigued, I suppose. Travel is not usually the time for truth. Don't she said softly, and Reginald suddenly looked terrified. Don't be glib. I'm sorry, he whispered. Wendy smiled. Let's just say this. The moment you tell the truth, you can stop 
traveling. They talked for over an hour in the empty wooden restaurant, and their conversation kept stalling, sliding into banalities, and then spiking into sudden unmasking honesty. It was exhausting, and after agreeing to meet for dinner, they retreated back to their rooms after breakfast, both needing a lie-down. As she lay, Wendy thought of Reginald lying down in another room, probably not forty feet from her own, and when she slept, she dreamed that they were two balloons, trying to join inflated hands as they bounced in fear over a jagged and spiky land. When Wendy came down for dinner, Reginald was standing in front of the check-in desk, dressed in a suit that did not fit him very well. He smiled apologetically, and Wendy's eyes stung with little tears at the realization that he had gone out during the day and bought a suit for their dinner. The poor boy, he has not had much experience with women. Reginald walked forward to take her hand as she stepped down. It was a tender, protective gesture, and it filled her heart with a strange peace. This deference will not end in a broken nose. A broken heart, perhaps, but that is infinitely better. You look lovely, he said. Wendy nodded slowly, almost shyly. He's looking into my eyes. Thank you. I, on the other hand, look as if I have grave-robbed a Spanish undertaker. No, you're fine, thanks. Now I know how you look when you lie. He opened the door for her, and she tried to glide through like a princess. Outside, the air was hot and thick. Wendy had put half a handful of talcum down her underwear and felt glad. Not because I expect to grant access, though. He wouldn't know what to do with it. That last thought was an old cynical echo combined with a sort of holy fear of a man who did not know his way around a woman's plumbing. He will put me on a pedestal and not just to peek up my dress. Reginald was looking at her in wonder, tempting all her devils with the white face of an acolyte. Don't, she said. He looked away. What? He knows, she thought, but needs a moment to compose. And so he will say, Sorry. Silence. His brow furrowed. You don't like to be stared at. No, I don't. Wendy suddenly noticed that she was taller than Reginald, but that didn't bother her at all, as long as he doesn't go bald. I thought, he said, guiding her arm gently, that we might walk up to the castle at Olite. It's not far. Wendy nodded. Her lips twitched, but she didn't know what kind of smile fit this kind of happiness. They walked onto a stone bridge. She wandered over to the edge. He trailed behind. Dark forests, little insects, slow ripples. "'So tell me about yourself,' he said, staring at the water, other than that you're sad. "'I am an eldest sister.' We lived in the country when we were young. Now we live in London. My parents want me to get married so bad that they smell like sulfur. Sorry, I don't know what that means. I was never very good at following the rules. So you don't want to get married? She almost laughed. Well, funny, you should mention that. What do you mean? Just, I was thinking of it when I saw you running away this morning. Oh, you saw me go? Like a little white rabbit. Reginald frowned. Hmm, 
He was not too pleased with that, it seemed. Wendy tried to rally him. You must be enormously fit. Yes, yes, I suppose so. Have you always been a runner? Oh, no. No, that's the odd thing. My brother is the sportsman. I am the man of letters. I just thought, let's do something different this summer, something I will remember, something to bully my future children with when they're lazy. I ran through Europe. You can darwell go and get some tobacco for Papa. He smiled. Are you close to your brother? Reginald took a deep breath and exhaled. Well, that's no simple question. Sometimes it's like we're the same person. Other times we're mortal enemies. What does he do? He sits in a room and reads. Is he ill? No. He, he just doesn't know what he wants to do. He can't focus, can't organize himself. He's an idealist. Reginald cocked his arm, holding up a mocking fist. No compromise, no surrender. He's the family Torquemada. That's my younger sister. Wearing dresses oppresses the workers. And what would the workers do who make the dresses if no one bought them? I shall use that on her. On second thought, no. She has an answer for everything. That's not Tom, said Reginald reflectively. Your brother? He nodded, taking a deep breath. Overhead, the darkest stars were coming out. They walked on into a narrow stone street with thick cobblestone shadows. He's paralyzed by questions, said Reginald after a while. No answers satisfy him. I mean, I tell him, Tom, each age has its own answers. The age we live in has certain answers. Take some, take one. Why question everything? Why be utterly robbed of the capacity for action? I hate to see him rotting away in that little clapboard room, reading and questioning and throwing his best years down the drain. It's such a waste. Reginald noticed that Reginald's hands were shaking. He's younger? she asked. Younger, yes. He took another deep breath. Sorry. He frustrates me no end. So much potential, he could have been anything. Well, he's not dead. We didn't have the money to finish school said Reginald suddenly. Sorry, that's most un-British. I'll have to turn my passport in. Hello, pleased to meet you. My family has had money troubles. Most uncouth. Everyone had their difficulties in 29. Yours too? No, we're land-based. I see. Something was churning up in Reginald. Wendy could see that. She could not resist poking at it. It was cruel, but it was her. So? So Tom... Didn't get a scholarship. I did. What a shame. Reginald shook his head. No, that's not it. He's more intelligent than me in so many ways. He couldn't march to the socialist drumbeat. Hmm. He could have, though. He's self-destructive, I think. Didn't want to succeed. His aversion to socialism was just an excuse. Why wouldn't he want to succeed? Reginald paused. We're just walking. Don't you want to eat? Not yet, said Wendy. Tell me. Our mother, war widow, he pursed his lips. This is probably familiar territory. No, we're a clan of women, said Wendy. Queen bees, my father was too old when war came. He did get some terrible paper cuts, though. That was a dangerous joke, even thirteen years after the war. But Reginald took it all right, she saw with relief. My mother fell into a ten-year depression, more than ten, Eleven? More like twelve? Anyway, she sort of fastened on to Tom. I kept my distance, he shuddered. 
She was like quicksand. And your father? Dad? Reginald smiled. He's a good sort. Brusque, but his heart's in the right place. He's entering politics, yea, even as we speak. They walked. Spanish insects circled them, lazily bumping into the stone walls. A laughing peasant couple walked past, arm in arm. Reginald and Wendy simultaneously envied an imaginary simple life. Neighbors, food, priest, death. "'Are your shoes all right?' asked Reginald. "'For walking? My mother can't make thirty yards even with aspirin. I'm fine. I am a sensible girl. One does not travel with stilettos.' He glanced at her sideways and smiled. "'Sensible walking shoes. You are an old maid in the making.' It was his turn to make a dangerous joke, and her turn to take it all right. "'So your brother does not want to succeed because your mother was depressed?' "'That's the thesis,' shrugged Reginald. "'Stated baldly, it doesn't have quite the same ring. "'How would you put it?' "'Tom is stalled because—because because he's got sort of a religious soul.' Putting Tom in the modern world is like putting a monk in charge of a factory, or diplomacy. He has all these pure, perfect, impractical standards. He would never accept any metal because it would never be 100% pure. I swear I've thought of pointing out that his clothes will always have some little dust in them even right after they're washed. If I ever got him to believe that, he'd live naked for the rest of his life. She laughed, and it was an odd laugh, thought Reginald, something a little tinny about it, and... Desperate? So you're more comfortable with an alloy, so to speak, she asked, glancing at him sideways. Nothing is pure except maths, he said, his hands coming up in fists, and maths do not exist in the real world. The air we breathe is not pure. The water we drink is polluted. We are always sick, just a little. After eighteen, we die a little each day. We die a little more, and then a lot more. Babies are lovely and poo themselves. The sun has spots. Beautiful skin under a microscope is like the moon. It's all nonsense, this purity, his idealism. So he's perfect, but he cannot act. I am imperfect in his eyes, of course, perhaps worse, but I shall save his skin nonetheless. Hmm, murmured Wendy. And is that why you have joined the Foreign Office? Reginald's face was red. To save him, she prompted. His anger, or was it rage, pulled at her darker instincts. How I love to provoke the enraged. This was familiar ground. But Reginald broke the pattern, and it was probably then that she fell in love with him. He shook his head so rapidly that it appeared to shimmer in her peripheral vision. Then he turned to her and said, Wendy, I think I would far rather go to dinner, light a candle, and talk about you than discuss my brother. All right, she said in a small voice, and allowed herself to be led away. <laughs>